Well, please take your Bibles and turn in them to John 3, continuing our study in John's Gospel, and we come to verses 22 through 30. John 3, 22 through 30. This will be our text this morning, and let's begin by reading it together. Beginning in verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. What is most important in your life? It's possible that you've never thought about that question, but everyone has an answer to it. There is something that every one of us considers to be most important in our life. Even if we've never explicitly identified what it is, either to ourselves or to other people. And our answer to the question, what is most important in your life, will shape how we actually live. Whatever we think is most important in life will determine our priorities. It will shape all of our decisions. Tragically, in our fallen state, our nature is corrupt and bent upon sin. Before you balk at that, just stop and think about the desires, the thoughts that naturally arise in your own heart. Or think about what would happen to the world if there were no restraint upon the natural impulses of human beings. And most fundamentally, fallen human nature is prone to pride and selfishness. We all tend, in other words, to consider ourselves to be the most important thing in life. Even if we make idols out of other things in the world, a spouse, children, wealth, career, political power, it's still most likely because of the way these things serve our own interests. It's amazing how acceptable this has become in our cultural context today. We're bombarded with messages like these, which I found near at hand on the internet. Quote, love yourself first and everything else falls in line. Quote, do things that make you feel good. Quote, choose to put yourself first and make yourself a priority. It's not selfish, it's necessary. Quote, your personal growth is the only thing that matters. You own and write your own story. No one else does. Quote, you don't need to live to fulfill others' expectations. Live for yourself. Love yourself, and do not let them tell you that it's selfish. You know, we've come to a place in her society, haven't we, where instead of restraining the proud and selfish impulses of our fallen human nature, we've decided that indulging them is the ultimate good, the key to our happiness. And when we consider ourselves to be the most important thing in life, we're going to end up placing a priority upon serving our own interests. And every decision we make will be based upon our calculations of how best to do that. But as Christians, 
we at least know from Scripture that we are not the most important thing in life. And that when we try and live as if we were, it is not only immoral, but destructive. Indeed, our only hope of true happiness is to repent and turn away from living for ourselves. But the question's with, what should we be living for? What should shape our priorities, our decisions in life? What is the most important thing in life? Well, I think our text this morning actually speaks to this very issue. So let's walk through it together and let me show you what I mean. Now, the verses that we've come to this morning are still describing events which occurred during the earliest days of Jesus's public ministry. So after performing his first miracle, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, you remember Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his disciples for the Passover feast. And there he began teaching and he performing miracles, which in turn testified to the fact that his teaching was from God. And as a result, many were already believing in him, including some of the religious leaders of that time. However, while some had true faith in him and became his disciples, when thinks of Andrew and Peter and Philip and Thomas, whom we've already met in this gospel, the faith of others, John tells us, was superficial because they didn't really understand who he was. And Jesus had had a conversation with one such person named Nicodemus in the first part of this third chapter. But now in verse 22... The author tells us what happened at the conclusion of that first eventful trip to Jerusalem and at the end of his conversation with Nicodemus. So verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So presumably once the Passover feast was concluded, Jesus left the city of Jerusalem and he took his disciples and he went out to the countryside, a more rural part of the region around Jerusalem, which was called Judea. And we're not told where he went. We can assume that it must have been a place with some substantial amount of water because it says that he was baptizing people there, which means he was immersing them in water. And actually, later on in chapter 4, verse 2, John helpfully clarifies for us that Jesus, he says, himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. But John says that Jesus was baptizing here because they were doing so on his behalf. Now, John's, though, is the only account of the gospel. There's four of them. This is the only one which mentions Jesus and his disciples baptizing people during his public ministry. And it's unclear, actually, what these early baptisms signified. A very common suggestion is that Jesus' baptizing ministry was merely an extension of John the Baptist, and that the baptisms that Jesus performed signified repentance, just like John's did. But I question that because it seems that Jesus' baptism was uniquely connected with his ministry, not John's. For instance, In chapter 4, verse 1, for instance, it later says that Jesus was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Now that indicates that somehow Jesus' baptism was like an initiation rite into the community of his disciples, though it probably did symbolize cleansing in some way like John's baptism did. What the, text, what the next verse indicates, though, is that this early baptizing ministry of Jesus overlapped, at least for a period of time, with the baptizing ministry of John. So look at verse 23. It says, John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, while we're not told the exact location in the Judean countryside where Jesus was baptizing, we 
are told here that John was baptizing in a place called Aenon near Salim. We don't know exactly where that was. It's been lost to us in, in history. But the implication is that it was relatively close to where Jesus was baptizing. And this led to a little bit of an awkward situation, which we're going to see in a moment. Now, before getting to that, however, John, the author, makes a little comment there, verse 24. And it seems to have been intended to clear up a potential misunderstanding on the part of the original readers, because this is the last gospel written. So the original readers of this gospel would have probably already been familiar with parts of, or at least, or perhaps all of, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you read those other three gospels, you would have assumed that John the Baptist got arrested just as Jesus began his public ministry, so that there wouldn't be any overlap. As soon as Jesus comes on the scene, John goes to jail. So they might find it strange that John here is describing Jesus' ministry as overlapping with John the Baptist. And so to bring clarity, the author in verse 24 says, John had not yet been put in prison. In other words, as he would throughout this book, the author is revealing information about Jesus' ministry which had not previously been revealed in the other three Gospels. Though it wasn't talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there was this short period of time between the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the end of John the Baptist, when they were both active at the same time. And that's when this event he was about to describe took place. So let's look at his description, beginning in verses 25 and 26. There it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now there's some ambiguity about what's going on here. But as best as I can tell, this is what it's saying. That Jesus and John were both baptizing people, along with their disciples, at separate but nearby locations in the Judean countryside. And some of John's disciples went to the place where Jesus was baptizing, and they had a rough go of it in several respects. First, they saw that more people were now coming to Jesus to be baptized than were coming to their master, John. In other words, their master, John the Baptist, was now being overshadowed by Jesus. And then second, while they were there, they had this run-in with a Jew, it says, a Jewish man, who was disputing with them about the subject of purification. Most likely, this meant he was in some way challenging the legitimacy of their master, John's baptism, a rite of purification. And maybe saying that it wasn't needed or it was illegitimate relative to the purification rites that the Jews already had from the tradition of the rabbis. Now, all of this seems to have been sort of a a cause for ruffling their feathers. It was a source of consternation for this group of John's disciples. D.A. Carson, I think, sums it up well. He says, apparently, the debate with the Jew fostered further reflections amongst some of John's disciples over the durability of their master's ministry, especially in light of the rising popularity of Jesus. And so they return to the place where their master's baptizing, they're upset, they're worried about him, and they say to him, verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, these disciples of John, they rightly held their master in high regard. But they clearly did not yet understand who Jesus was. And beyond that, out of their zeal for their master, John the Baptist, they viewed Jesus' ministry as a rival in competition to John's. And so 
they had responded to the success of Jesus' ministry with jealousy and resentment. But when John the Baptist heard their report, his own reaction is quite different, isn't it? And there are four elements to what he says in verses 27 through 30. Let's just look at each one in turn. First, we read in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So here what John is doing is he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God in the relative success of his and Jesus' baptizing ministries. He's not saying that the popularity of a person's ministry was a sign of God's blessing upon it. But he knew that both Jesus and he were doing work which God had given them to do. So he trusted the results to the Lord. John knew that the fruitfulness of their respective ministries was something that was determined by God and that God's purposes were perfectly wise and good. So he wasn't going to fret about the fact that more people were going to Jesus to be baptized than to him because he knew this is the will of God. But then we read second. The second thing John has to say in response to the report of his disciples there in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John, in other words, he didn't resent the fact that people were beginning to go to Jesus to be baptized instead of him because Jesus was the Messiah, not him. Jesus, not him, was God's ultimate anointed one. That's what the word Christ or Messiah means because he was the king, the savior foretold throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, you remember John had said, was so much greater than him that John declared he wasn't even worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. Of course people should go to Jesus rather than him. John didn't resent it at all. Indeed, the whole point of his ministry was to prepare the nation of Israel for Jesus' arrival. As he said, I've been sent before him. This is Malachi 3.1. I've sent my messenger before your face to prepare the way for his coming. This leads to the third thing John said in response to the report of his disciples. We see it there in verse 29. There John's recorded as saying this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So here John used the illustration of a wedding to explain his response to his disciples' report. Now, in a typical Jewish wedding of that day, a, quote, friend of the bridegroom, you know, perhaps roughly equivalent to our best man, in that day would take responsibility for making sure the wedding went off without a hitch. And John pointed out that when the bridegroom arrived at the wedding to formally receive his bride, well, the friend of the bridegroom wouldn't be envious of the groom. He would rejoice because this is the culmination of the wedding that he had been working to ensure. After all, the bride doesn't belong to the friend of the bridegroom, but to the bridegroom himself. So their union makes the friend happy, not resentful. Well, in the same way, John told his disciples, Israel, or Israel was like the bride, and Jesus, as the Messiah, was like the bridegroom. While he, John, was like the friend of the bridegroom, who had come to prepare the nation for the bridegroom's arrival. So just like any friend of the bridegroom worth his salt, John rejoiced to hear that the nation was going out to see Jesus in droves and to be baptized by him rather than coming to John. This is the way it should be. The nation belonged to him as the Messiah. John wanted nothing more 
than to see them receiving Jesus. This is what he had been working to ensure. It must also be said that this was more than just a mere illustration. Because you remember, God had established human marriage as a covenant union between a man and a woman way back in Genesis chapter 2. And then he began appealing to human marriage as illustrative of that old covenant relationship that he had established between himself and the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. So this is just one example, but in Jeremiah 2, 1 through 2, the Lord said to the nation through the prophet, quote, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. But as we know, Israel was an unfaithful bride to God. She had committed adultery against him repeatedly with other gods. She had violated her covenant with him again and again, both through idolatry and other kinds of immorality. So after years of bearing with the persistent unfaithfulness of Israel, his old covenant bride, the Lord had finally sent her away into exile. Like a husband sending his wife away with a certificate of divorce because of her persistent adultery against him. So the Lord went on to say in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. And yet, the Lord had promised through the prophets that a time was coming in the future when he would have compassion upon the nation. At least a righteous remnant And even though she'd been an unfaithful wife to him, he would restore a remnant to himself out of exile. And he would take her into covenant relationship with himself once again so that he might rejoice over her as a husband does his bride. So the Lord declared to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 3-5, to Israel, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Only this time, the marriage relationship between God and his people would never again be broken because he would establish a new covenant with them in which he would fulfill all of the necessary conditions. And he would so work in their hearts this righteous remnant of his people that they would be faithful to him. This is, after all, what Jeremiah 31, 31 through 36 is all about. The Lord said through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If the fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And when you get to the New Testament, you see that these very promises are fulfilled through Jesus the Messiah. 
that he is the Lord, Yahweh, come down into the world to take on our very own nature, to become a man, to fetch us as his bride. We hear that he inaugurated the new covenant promised through Jeremiah in his death, even as he held up the cup at the Last Supper, which symbolized the blood that he would shed for his people at the cross and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then the next day, he secured complete and permanent forgiveness for his people. That is, all who believe in him. Both a remnant of believing Jews, but in a mystery it turns out also a remnant from the nations, believing Gentiles as well. Because he offered himself up unto death on the cross as a once for all sacrifice for their sins. And then, of course, after rising again on the third day and ascending into heaven to take his seat at God's right hand as their king and high priest forever, he poured out the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people to give them new spiritual life so that they might love and might obey him forever. So now Paul could describe the church, this new covenant people of God, a remnant of believing Jews with a remnant of believing Gentiles added in. And he could say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And just as a man in Jesus' day would typically leave his betrothed for a period of time and go away to his father's house and prepare a place for his bride, before consummating his marriage with her. So Jesus said to us, his disciples, we're memorizing it now, John 14, 2-3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent to indwell the church, his new covenant bride, it's also a seal. The Spirit marks us off as the very possession of Christ, his blood-bought bride. And it guarantees that he will return to consummate his relationship with us at the end of history. Indeed, we read Revelation 21 this morning, but two chapters earlier, we hear about a vision of that final glorious day and what it will be like. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe, clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We the saints are the bride of Christ and that speaks of our wedding day. When that day comes, the Lord's Supper which we as Christians celebrate regularly to remember how he has loved us and given himself for us on the cross, that supper will give way to the marriage supper of the Lamb when the church will finally see her great and their relationship will come to its full and final consummation and it will lead to eternal satisfaction and joy. So let me bring this back. You see, when John describes Jesus in this text as the bridegroom, this wasn't a mere illustration. He was tapping into a rich biblical theme which stretched far back into the Old Testament scriptures 
and was now coming to its long-awaited fulfillment that Jesus was. The great bridegroom had come to restore a remnant of believing sinners, both Jew and Gentile, out of exiles to betroth them to himself in the bonds of this permanent new covenant about which the prophets of old had spoken. All this leads us finally to the fourth thing that John said in response to the report of his disciples. About all the people were going to Jesus to be baptized instead of him. He said, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, John began with that little phrase. It's translated, he must. In the, in the Greek, it's just one little word, dei, and it means it is necessary. And in contexts like this in the Gospels, it always would indicate that something had to happen because it was God's plan. John the Baptist recognized it was God's plan for him to decrease, to diminish as Jesus, the Messiah, increased, became greater. John had come to prepare the way for the arrival of Jesus. And for a while, this meant that the spotlight was on him as he called the nation to repentance and he baptized them for the forgiveness of their sins. But now, Jesus had arrived. He'd begun his public ministry and now the spotlight must leave John and shift to Jesus. Because after all, he's... He's the main event, the main attraction. He's the Christ. Jesus himself would say of John later on in John 5, 35 through 36, he would say of John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Jesus, after all, was not a lamp, but the very light of the world. Now, having walked through this text together, let's just reflect briefly upon what its main point is and how it applies to our life. Yeah, I began this morning by asking that question. What's the most important thing in life? The thing which we ought to be living for, which ought to shape our priorities and our decisions. Well, that text points us to the answer. It's not us. It's Jesus. We are not the most important thing in life. He is. Jesus is the one whom we should be living for, not ourselves. His interests should shape all of our priorities and our actions, not our own desires. Of course, you might say, well, actually, Jeremy, to get technical, isn't it God? That's the most important thing in life? Well, yes, of course, but God has revealed himself in the scriptures as triune, as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we see in the New Testament is that God the Father has purposed to make God the Son, Jesus Christ, and his work of redemption on behalf of the church, the very goal of human history. You remember Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, where he described the purpose of God, God the Father, quote, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite to sons on earth. Or again, Colossians 1, Paul said of Jesus that as the, quote, firstborn of all creation, all things were created through him and for him. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, John the Baptist surely didn't understand all of those things the way that Paul did later on, or the way that we do now as we read the New Testament. But he did know the basic truth, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Son of God. He had come to be the king and savior of God's people. And therefore he knew his life was all about Jesus. So John, knowing that Jesus was the most important thing in life, he was glad to give way to him, to see people flock to him in droves as he himself diminished into the background. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to hear and understand that Jesus Christ not you, is actually the most important thing in life. 
as long as you keep living for yourself or for created things that serve your own interests, other people, your possessions, power, pleasure, you're only going to find emptiness and destruction. Those things are broken cisterns that hold no water. In fact, you have to repent of your pride and of your selfishness and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today. The good news is that he has come from God the Father. He is the Son of God made flesh to redeem sinful human beings like you and me from our folly and from our rebellion by dying to save us from our sins and rising again to give us eternal life. And he is alive even now, having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven And he is calling sinners, sinners like you and me, to come to him in faith, to receive salvation from the judgment that you deserve for your sin as a free gift of grace. It's your choice. Will you keep living for yourself and die? Or will you turn to Jesus in faith and live? You know, John would put it a few verses later, verse 36, he would say, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, we also learn from this passage and from the example of John the Baptist that we see in this text that Jesus must be the most important thing in our lives, whom we are living for above all else who shapes our priorities and our decisions in life. Now, this should be obvious to us, right? Because we have come to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And we've received from him this gift of salvation that he's purchased through his blood. Yet, we all know, right? Because of our remaining sin, we all know it's a constant temptation to go back to living for ourselves to living for created things that serve our interests, just like we did before. As long as we live in these fallen bodies and in a world full of seductions, we're going to be prone to go astray from living for Christ and allow our own pride and selfishness to govern our priorities and our decisions again. So let this morning be an occasion to examine ourselves and ask ourselves the honest question, what really is most important to me in life right now? What am I really living for at the end of the day? Is it actually Jesus or is it something else? Perhaps the Spirit of God will use this passage to convict you this morning of your need to repent of pride and living for yourself and to lead you to set your eyes on Christ once again. And when we begin to recognize that Jesus is the most important thing in our lives, brothers and sisters, so that we're living for him above all, then the attitude that's reflected in John's four statements in response to this report that he had heard of how everyone was going to Jesus, well, that attitude will become ours as well. So, instead of envying, for instance, the roles of others in the church that seem more prominent than ours, we'll be able to trust that these things are determined by God in his wise and good counsels. We will be able to say with John, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Instead of becoming territorial in the church about, for instance, areas of ministry and resenting when we see others are more successful or more fruitful in their ministry than ours, we'll remember that, hey, ministry within the church is not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. And we will rejoice over any ministry that brings him glory wherever we see it happening. Indeed, instead of focusing on ourselves at all, When it comes to the ministry of the church, we'll think of the church as the bride of Christ. And we'll desire above all else to see her remain faithful to him. So that she might be presented to him someday 
as a spotless bride. You know, something's gone terribly wrong in our hearts, brothers and sisters, when we are focused more upon our own opportunities and our own reputations within the church than we are upon the health and fidelity of the church itself. We ought to be like a friend of the bridegroom, rejoicing to see the church growing in love for and obedience to her great bridegroom, Jesus, rather than jostling for roles and recognition in the process. Finally, instead of fixating upon our own reputation in the church, our focus should be upon seeing Jesus known and honored more and more by more and more people. So, for instance, we'll not be thinking about our ministry at all. We'll be focused upon telling people about Jesus, about building up his church. And we'll be willing to suffer any loss to ourselves to see that happen. For instance, we might be willing to give way to others who might be better fitted for a particular role in the body, either because they're more gifted or because our own abilities are declining. May the words of John the Baptist be the banner over all of our lives and over every church. He must increase, but I must decrease. Because it's all about him. Now that's not to say, brothers and sisters, that we as Christians, that the church has no honor in all of this. Rather, we're all part of the grand story which Christ is accomplishing in human history. We are, brothers and sisters, that harlotrous bride which God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem as his own. And since we are the bride of Christ, well, his glory is ours because we are united to him. He has given us his own name. He has crowned us with his steadfast love. Our redemption resounds to his glory. And so as we pursue the honor of Christ and the well-being of the church, it's going to result in our own happiness and honor as well. Well, in conclusion, what is the most important thing in your life? Whether you thought about it or not, everyone has an answer to that question. And your answer is determining all your priorities and all your decisions in life. So you have to make sure you get it right. This morning, we've learned the right answer from this final appearance of John the Baptist in John's Gospel. The most important thing in life is Jesus. As we sang today, all I have is Christ. And we must be living for him, not ourselves. May the Holy Spirit take this truth and wash us with it so that Christ may take his rightful place upon the throne of our hearts. For his good, for our good, and his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. And as I do that, if I could have the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper, come on up at this point. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious truths. We turn our eyes to our Savior and King, our great high priest, our ultimate prophet, David's greater son, our great bridegroom, our chief shepherd, the vine in whom we abide, our friend, our lover. We thank you that you have given us to him, though we were nothing, though we deserved your judgment, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But out of the great love with which you loved us, You have raised us from death to life. You have given us to your son. He has laid down his life for us so that we might be washed, so that we might be redeemed, purchased through his blood. We now are the people of your son, his new covenant community, his new covenant bride. We thank you. We long for that day 
when as we sang this morning, we will reach that ultimate goal toward which we attain, toward which we seek, to see our King, to be with him forever, that he would take us to be where he is. Oh Lord, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we pray that you would remind us afresh of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us, of his great love for us through his shed blood and broken body, and that you would renew within us a love and devotion to him, that we would make him our highest goal, the most important thing in life. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, once a month, first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if you're visiting with us, we have our services a little longer as a result of this. And I always want to take a moment to explain what the Lord's Supper is all about so that we can partake of it with understanding and therefore with faith. And the Lord's Supper is a symbolic ritual. The Old Covenant had its rituals like the Passover. The New Covenant has two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it symbolizes a number of things. The Lord's Supper, first of all, symbolizes the death of Christ upon the cross for us as his people. Like the Passover, his death accomplished our salvation from judgment, the judgment that we deserve. And as we read this morning, the inauguration of a new covenant in which we receive every spiritual blessing as his people. So this is why Jesus said of the bread, this is my body which is given for you. And then of the cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Together they symbolize his death and what it accomplished. But it also symbolizes this meal, this ritual, our participation in the saving benefits of Christ's death through faith. Because we don't just look at the bread in the cup, we eat the bread, we drink the cup. And that symbolizes that we who partake of the bread and the cup, that we have received the benefits that Christ secured through his death, that great salvation, all the new covenant blessings, when we believed in him. So the eating and the drinking symbolize that when we trusted in Christ, he fed our souls with himself, with the benefits of his saving work. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The same imagery. And so in this way, the Lord's Supper becomes a testimony to us. A testimony of, first of all, the profound love which God has shown us in Christ. Because the death of Christ upon the cross, which is symbolized here in this meal, is the greatest display of divine love. Paul said this in Romans 5, 6 through 8, famously. He said, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul or John said the same thing in 1 John 4.10. He said, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So every time we partake of this holy meal together, we should see in it our Lord Jesus Christ reaffirming to our souls, sealing afresh upon our souls by the Spirit as we partake in faith, his love for us as his people. And it should stir up fresh love for him in return. He who loved us and gave himself up for us. But even as I talk, you can recognize this meal is for Christians. It's for the new covenant community of God's people. That means if you're not a Christian here this morning, you should not partake. Please do not partake. There's no shame in that in the sense that we're glad you're here. Let the elements pass by. For you, they testify to what you need. You need the salvation that is represented in this meal. And I I hope that today will be the day 
that you repent of your sins and put your trust in him so that you can be baptized and join the church and partake of this meal as a member of the new covenant. Also, we have to say every time that Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 makes it very clear that even if a believer is living in unrepented sin, we all come to the meal with sin, right? This is an occasion to confess our sins afresh and know that it's through his death that he's secured our forgiveness. But if you're here this morning and you're living in sin, whether known or secret, and refusing to repent, then you should not partake of the Lord's Supper until you are willing to repent and make things right with the Lord. Paul says if you do, you could eat or drink judgment upon yourself. It does not mean that you can't be struggling this morning. If you're willing to repent, come to the table. But if not, you need to let the meal pass by. And you need to do business with God. And hopefully this would be an occasion for you to be convicted of your sin and make things right with the Lord. Well, let's pray together for the elements and then I'll have the men pass them out. And I want to remind you that as they get passed out, there are some special uh, pieces of bread that are those that have gluten intolerance. So if you see those, don't take them unless you need them. Um, And remember that there's two cups. One has the juice and one has the bread. So just take them and then take them apart and you'll see both elements. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your salvation of us. Oh Lord, we were all like sheep going astray, going our own way, living for ourselves, full of pride, deserving nothing but your righteous judgment. And yet you had compassion upon us and you sent your son to purchase our pardon by bearing that judgment in our place at Calvary. We thank you for his broken body represented by this bread. We thank you for his shed blood that he died. He poured himself out for us represented by this cup. We thank you for the new covenant that he established a covenant in which he fulfilled all of the conditions, a covenant in which the blessings are better blessings, a covenant that will never be broken that you have made with us who believe in you. We thank you. You've taken us and given us to your son as his bride. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've loved us, sacrificed yourself for us, that we were not worthy, united yourself to us forever. We long for your return and we eat the cup and drink the bread until that day that you appear and we see you face to face or that we die and go to your presence. So please bless our partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Let it be food, nourishment for our souls. Let it stir up within us fresh faith and love for Christ, a covenant renewal, so to speak. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.